Good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM and we are broadcasting to Toronto and Ottawa, 95.7 in Ottawa and 106.5 in Toronto. Of course, you could also be listening anywhere across Canada if you've downloaded the Radio Player Canada app and type in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5. E-L-M-N-T-F-M. And uh, we are honored to have uh, a, 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 a chef with us this morning. And, you know, this is the second time we've had a chef come in. And I have to say, I'm, I'm mildly disappointed, just mildly disappointed, that neither of them have brought any food in. I don't get it. I don't get it. They don't bring any food in for us to taste. But with us this morning is Anishinaabe chef Joel White Duck Ringette. And uh, he is from Nishtish. Joel, uh, welcome to the show today. Ani, good morning. Thank you for having me here. Hey, it's a pleasure. And uh, we have uh, some some things to talk about in terms of food and some other things that you're involved with. And I always like to get a sense of people on the show, especially when they're the first time guests with us, is to find out about um, where they've started. Now, Nishtish has been around for, what, 12, 13 years? 14 years, 14 years on okay. May. May the okay. 5th will be 14 years for our catering business. Yep. The catering business, you started in catering, right? Yes. But how did you get started initially with with cooking? What what drew your attention to food and cooking and and uh, initially with cooking, I, I'm from north of North Bay. My mm. grandmother's from Nipissing. Okay. But um my family brought us to the land all the time. Like we lived on the land. We lived back in the woods up on uh Tebow Kill, some up highway eleven north. Mm. My father had hunting camps. Mm. So that um, we would visit regularly. So we were on small lakes and it was really our playground. So early age, we were taught how to respect fire, how to build fire and how to cook on the fire um, at the hunt camp. So that really, I'd say, is what uh, piqued my interest in, in, in wanting to cook food on my own right. like, independently over a fire. So. And, uh, yeah, over fire. Yeah. Now, how would you interpret that in itself, cooking over an open fire versus modern day cooking over, say, you know, uh, over some kind of a stove, whether it be gas or electric? Well, it's an entirely different process working with the elements. Mm. (laughs) And uh, I I would prefer it. If I could cook Mm. that way all the time, that's Mm. that's how I would cook. Um, But I can't. So there's so many different methods in, you know, in cooking with gas ovens and, Mm. and, uh, but flame is great. And that's the closest you can get to Mm. it is like gas flame. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I'm guessing that that whole it's like the atmosphere, it's like the fire, the fire, yeah, the wood, the, f- the smell, the the the, the smoke, the shatagan, the mm. very very first flame in the beginning of creation before we were even here is the first flame, and that's from the chaga plant mm. uh, on the birch tree, mm. which created the first fire. We create fire from the the chaga that's off a birch tree. Mm. Yeah. A birch tree you, you have on the outside of, or, of your, your store. I do. Because the, the Anishinaabe, they love the birch tree. Mm. And that is the wigwas. And we owe everything to the wigwas, mm. of course, because it, it gave us our shelter for our wigwams. Yeah. That's why the two words sound alike. And, um, of course, it created our way of navigation mm. with the canoe. Yeah. And uh, it created our way of carrying food. So it's uh it's got a natural repellent on it, so you can mm-hmm. seal them and carry yep. liquid, yep. and of course you can uh, carry all dry products. And uh, the all woods mm-hmm. usually have an antimicrobial uh, in it, so they they protect everything. They keep right. things uh, safe. Yeah. yeah. So from your your experience of growing up on the land, I'm thinking of as soon as you said that, the first thing I thought about is ah, because I was going to ask you about spicing, you know, yeah. and and what to use for indigenous spicing for foods. So we use a series of, of, of different uh, fresh herbs, like sage is a big one. Mm. Uh, juniper is a very big one for me, and then some of the animals eat it. Mm. So it's why it's, it's important, and it tastes great with game meats. Mm. So a lot of juniper, a lot of sage, um, your traditional things like salt and pepper, uh, different types of pepper, uh, different types of salt. But the one I use the most is actually a pink salt. It's Himalayan salt, mm. the healthiest salt you can consume, mm-hmm. or at least sea salt. If you can get sea yeah. salt, have that. Not so much uh, the table yeah. salt or iodized salt. It causes a few more health problems. Yeah, what's the difference between them anyway? Mm, one hasn't gone through a process. I'm not sure right. um, the the um, 
pink salt has yeah. still has a lot of elements, trace elements we need in our bodies. Mm, right. So that that's the the few things that I know about it. Okay, thanks. So let's get back to uh, your your introduction to to cooking and where you got started. I think that's definitely. Kind of so a lot. My first job, I, I actually I actually worked as um, like at a buffet type hotel uh, when I was fifteen, mm. and I continued working in the food industry uh, in hotels in uh, a tavern. I was a prep. I was a dishwasher. I was. Uh, uh, cater waiter for many, many years, including mm. when I moved to the city. So I remember uh, two nights ago, we did the CCAB's um, gala mm. and uh, Indigenous Award uh, show, and it was fantastic. It was beautiful and uh, honoring to Indigenous women. And we did all the food for it, but that very same hall that we were in, which is the Design Exchange Building, gorgeous piece of architecture, I was in that 30 years ago, cater waitering. Wow. So it's a long haul, you know, since that time. Yeah. And essentially what happened after working about 10 years uh, within the indigenous uh, justice system in Gladue Court. Gladue Court is yeah. Aboriginal People's Court at Old City Hall. There are now four courts in Toronto. But working in there as a Gladue aftercare worker um, with Native court workers, um, I needed to get spiritual guidance. So I went to Anishinaabe Health and I met uh, a traditional medicine person there named Mark Thompson. So Mark Thompson was from Winnipeg, and he gave me a lot of guidance to keep myself healthy and to keep on the right track of the work we were doing. And he eventually told me that the justice that I was looking for wasn't in that system and that I should pass on my tools from Gladue to somebody new and take up the real gift I had, which was with traditional food. Now, I didn't know how to do that. Mm. Mark told me, go mm. register the business and start sourcing the food. Mm. And your your goal is to bring the people back together by the food, bringing mm. back the indi- indigenous Anishinaabe diet. Yeah. Because ceremony is with all the food. Right. The language is with all the food. So the food brings us all together. Mm. And um, we have all kinds of different, you know, a lot of our population is decimated through uh, illness and disease based on food intake because yeah. we don't have access to our food and we need we need to have it. So that's the journey of food sovereignty is trying to make it accessible at least to the 200,000 indigenous people in the GTA. What comes to mind when you say that is uh, a fairly large responsibility that you have with doing that? Well, I feel it, but I love it. I yeah. love I love the work, and that's that's why, sis, I love the question that you asked about where did it start? Because it really did start on the fires mm. at the camp, like mm. the open fires that we were uh, taught to cook around. That That's really where it started. So mm. fishing, trapping, um, hunting, those are all the things we did as children. Picking berries, tapping trees, these are fantastic things that my parents gave us as children, and I don't think I realized how important those were Till I moved to the city and I couldn't do any of those things mm. and had no access to that food. Right. So uh, Nish Dish, as you said, started out in, in the catering uh, arm of things. You've now load, moved to a location on Bloor Street, 6, 690 yeah. Bloor Street. Yeah, 690. So just in the, the heart of uh, Koreatown yeah. at Christie and Bloor. Yeah. And uh, it's a, a beautiful little corner on the northeast uh, corner of Clinton and Bloor. And we've we've just had a, a tremendous amount of success there. We're about to have our second year anniversary on April the 29th. Mm. And we aim to have everybody out to try some free food. We bring out all the food to the people on the street. We'll have the big drums there. We'll have the uh, dancers in the regalia, the mm. elders doing the opening ceremony. And we'll bring out as much food as we can to everybody to celebrate the success of still being open after mm. two years. This is a critical landmark for restaurants in Toronto. As you may know, most of them fold before the two-year point. So, Yeah, congratulations on that. And I think you. that you were, you were mentioning to us just before the show started about the success of your grand opening. You want to just share that a little bit? Yeah, it was, it was really incredible. It was fantastic that CBC came down to uh, cover that story. So e- Eli Glasner was there Sorry, with his is group. A, is that a little radio station? Somewhere? Yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah it's, we've heard of it a few times. So they covered it. It was uh, just the people just kept coming and we mm. had to coordinate volunteers to get people down both sides of Clinton and it ran all the way almost half a block down the street. So there were some over 800 people at our 20-seated wow. person restaurant. Yeah, so it was it's... really, it was super moving. I mean, we were I was outside yeah. talking mm. to the people about our journey and what we had planned to do mm. at Nish Dish. 
And I just remember looking at all of our people who came out to support it, and it was it was a really moving event. Yeah. And you had some issues because you had so many people. If I... Well, yeah. If you have that many people, <laughs> they'll block the streets, and then you 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 have to take care of you know the businesses that are around there, protect yeah. them too. So you need special permits for that. You need a street permit if you mm. block a street. Mm. Um, but we had a sidewalk permit, so that means you have to keep people on the sidewalks, and mm. that's what we did. It, it worked out well. We had a, a Joe Cressy, our, our counselor from that neighborhood at that time, uh, help us uh, support support the venue to do these things uh, in accordance. So, how, how would you say the community has accepted your your being in the in the Korean area? So. People love the you know we were renovating for about five months, and mm. that was really the problem is that people knew they got the <laughs> word that this is going to be an indigenous <laughs> restaurant, and everyone's coming around knocking on the door saying, "When are you opening this thing?" You know, so <laughs> took a lot of work to to get it to get it ready to how it is now. Right. There's a there's a ton of educational information in this dish, and you'll mm. see we had local artists painted the front of it that whole homage to the birch tree to the mm. wigwas is painted by uh ren gonna get a ren oh i'm gonna, i'll come, come back to it, it. yeah okay so yep. he's also involved in our our indigenous uh mural collective called mm. red urban collective mm-hmm. And we've done a series of massive murals down at the Bickford Center, and we're about to do phase two. And, of course, the Bickford Center has been a huge focus for Indigenous people in that particular community. We're doing the Indigenous Harvesters and Artisans Market on July 20th. And so before that market happens, we'll have all the new Indigenous murals up for people, and we'll do a, a mural reveal at the Indigenous Harvesters Market. Okay, we'll come back to that because we, we haven't finished with Nish Dish okay. yet. Yeah. So um, you have this small 18 to 20 seat uh, storefront. Yes. Uh, you have a catering kitchen that is is cooking prior to opening. Yes, and, and afterwards. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's a busy place. And it's a tiny place. Yeah. Now, I want to ask you about that. that. How does that roll into your idea of bringing food to people? The spacing is is an important. It's just as important as the food, the atmosphere, the the presentation. You've got this uh, the calendar on the ceiling, I believe. Yes. Can you just set that set that up for us a little bit more? So, I mean, we we do a number of things that um, at at Nish Dish to uh, invite the public in there. We host uh, local Indigenous artists every three months. We have a new artist on the wall, mm. and uh, we present that to the public and have people come in and we do a little gala for that artist and. Uh, that brings people in uh, after hours. So the general hours of this dish, we're not open on Mondays, but we're working in there every Monday because mm. we have so much catering. Mm. So um, we're open usually till six or seven uh, during the weekday and on the weekends other than Monday. And so after hour events happen there, private events happen there. Uh, with the catering, of course, we, we basically cater to every indigenous agency there is in the city. That includes uh, college departments, university departments, but there are on their own about almost 30 uh, not-for-profits that are Indigenous in the city, and we, we cater to all of them. So we have a really great relationship with our community. And um, we host and support many uh, community functions, uh, complimentary, like mm-hmm. certainly a lot of uh, memorials. We go to the Native Centre and we bring in our staff and we, we support those ceremonies for our loved ones and honour our, our elders and the people who go before us uh, with our food. Mm. That's that's great. Tell us a little bit about the uh, the, the the menu itself now. So so the menu, the uh, one of the things that we get asked all the time. Oh, so it's all meat, so I can't eat there because I'm mm. a vegan or I'm a vegetarian or I'm pescatarian. But of course, all of that food's there. So if you look back to before settlers came, because we did not have cows here, so there is there's no milk product on the menu anywhere. Um, there's one particular controversial piece of food called bannock, the home of everybody's heart <laughs> right. is the bannock. But bannock, of course, is not traditional food. It's, it's ration food that we had to do our best with. And because we're incredibly resourceful people, that's what we did. We took the flour rations and we kept our people alive off of that flour. Mm. But, but we only came here in the 1880s after all the buffalo were decimated. And yeah. that was the purpose, to grow yeah. that wheat and we can't actually digest it very well, so it's not very good for us. So small amounts of wheat, mm-hmm. that's okay, but too much of it, not good for sure. us. So our journey in our food sovereignty at Nish Dish is to create 
the bread that we once had that came from several of the plants that I've been speaking about publicly for a number of years. And one of them is the cattail. The cattail is a huge source of food for us and a huge source of resourcefulness that was for insulation. It's for wounds. It treats skin abrasions. It does all kinds of things for our people, um, including this amazing food source. So it was one of the few ingredients that are in our bread that we had. But now sourcing cattail and creating a flour from it is a whole new journey. Mm. And that we haven't got to yet. We have mm. the recipes to do it. We don't have the human capacity to do it yet, but we're working at it. Mm. Now, you're, you're, you also prep, uh, prepare foods that are seasonally based as well, right? Yes, we do. And so um, when it's right now, it's sucker moon. So will we get sucker fish and we won't, but we'll do the teachings of sucker, of sucker moon, mm-hmm. which is a very important part of our culture. Of course, at this time, at this moon phase, it dictated to our people what we would harvest and what was ready and available for us. At this time, as we know the teachings, the sucker moon gave its life to the Anishinaabe people as the very first food source after a long period of time of scarce food. This is the time of year where everything was still frozen. The ice is just starting to crack, and this is the first fish available. So uh, women would net this fish through the ice still, and, and we would also spear through the ice to get this fish. So sucker moon time, it's fish that are coming available to us. And we can't always bring in that particular fish, but we'll have a lot of fish on the menu. And also at the grand, I mean, the celebration of the two-year anniversary, we'll be uh, doing a lot of different types of fish and game. So game is a lot that a lot of the menu that we do um, present. We have buffalo there. Uh, probably one of the largest selling items is the buffalo chipotle sausage, and it is delicious. And it's our recipe. So the thing that binds the buffalo, because game meat is so lean, mm. is the duck fat. That's mm. what's in our recipe. Mm-hmm. So you're not dealing with pork or right. any sort of boar now because yeah. that's not our food. So we're really trying to go back to the very beginning of what would have been in our diet. So we've got buffalo on the menu frequently. We have elk. That's my favorite meat. Um, although we didn't hunt the elk, it wasn't, North Bay's not very far. We didn't mm. get elk in our, our territories, but they were down as mm. far as Toronto. Mm. Um, back in the day. So we can't sell moose because moose cannot be farmed. So that's a huge controversial, but th- those are the laws right now. And we hope that we can, we can change uh, some of the FDA um, policy at some point in time, because we want to be able to support our hunters and our trappers and our way of life. And we should have a right to do that. And that's part of food sovereignty too. Mm. But at this time it's elk, it's deer, it's buffalo. And those are the things that we can access um, we do have rabbit sometimes. Mm-hmm. We also have a number of different fishes, I've said. Arctic char, uh, smoked salmon on cedar planks, um, white fish, trout. These are the things we bring in the most. Um, and wild rice. Of course, all different types of wild rice dishes. And the Three Sisters. The yes. Three Sisters is a vegan dish, and it's yes. the traditional food that was... Um, grown here. The very first crops that were ever grown in these territories are the Three Sisters, and it's the one we talk about all the time, because of course it's totally symbolic of community and how we Mm. have to support each other to grow. You you want to explain that for people, because I think that's a really uh, wonderful story about the Three Sisters, as well as it's it's educational, but it's a great suit. Yeah, it is. It's it's, uh, really... It's kind of an ineffable tale when you think about how much power the Three Sisters absolutely represents. But from an agroecology standpoint, I can talk about that. And that's that the corn, the corn needs the help of the beans. So before corn, our corn, our indigenous corn can grow to its full capacity with a lot of nitrogen in the soil. And the way you get that nitrogen into the soil is through the beans. So you have to plant the beans, but you don't plant the beans at the same time as the corn. And the reason for that is that the bean grows very, very quickly and it will actually strangle the corn before it grows. So you plant the corn first and that corn planting is soon. It's in a certain phase of the moon, somewhere around the second, second phase of the moon in May. You plant that corn first and then two weeks, three weeks later, once the corn's about a foot and a half or two feet high, you go back, you plant the beans and the squash. So what the beans need is a pole. Mm-hmm. The corn produces that, for it provides that so the, the beans can climb and that beans can get all the sun that they need and the climbing ability that they have to grow to their capacity. And now the squash, of course, creates a shaded part of the soil, keeps the soil clear of a lot of dehydration because if it gets too much sun, you're drying out the soil. The great thing about the squash leaf, not only is it so large, 
and it creates shade, but it's super, super picky. So it keeps out the predators. Also keeps out the two-legged sometimes too, right? <laughs> you reach in and grab a squash, you'll right. find out why you don't grab quickly. So those are, those are the main things yeah. about the agroecology part of it, mm. but the symbolism of how those three plants help each other grow yep. and create the synergy as a community. That's what the teaching is. Those three sisters supported everybody and they're the pinnacle of what we want to look at as success in our community to help each other thrive. Joel, that's a great story. I, I thanks, Thank you for sharing that with us. We do have to take a short pause, but we will be right back on Moment of Truth and Element FM with Chef Joel White Duck Ringette. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. In our studio today with us, we have a chef, Anish, a Nanish Nabi chef, Joel White Duck Ringette, and he is from Nish Dish. We've been talking about a number of different things. Uh, Joel, you're full of uh, great stories and knowledge, and uh, we're going to have to definitely have you back on because there's other things we want to talk about with you that you're, you know, it's interesting that you deal with food and you talk about how food is that center that, that yes. things come out of. And that is mm. exactly, I think, what has happened with you and mm. launched you into other things that you're involved with. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, it really has. There's a whole lot of other work we do uh, based on the food and, and where it's led us into the community. You want to talk a little bit about where that sure, has led sure. and the things we, you're involved with? We now have, uh, there's two not-for-profits that were birthed out of Nish Dish. One of them is called Ojibikan Indigenous Cultural Network. And Ojibikan means the roots in Ojibwe. And the work of this not-for-profit is specifically to bring Indigenous teaching gardens across the city. And at this time, we now have five Indigenous teaching gardens. One's at Christie Pitts. It's about to expand, so anyone who wants to go down and see the Medicine Garden at Christie Pitts is welcome to do that, or even to uh, connect with OGBCon, IndigenousCulturalNetwork.com. You will uh, be able to write in and find out if you want to volunteer to learn more about Indigenous Gardens. Um, Nish Dish is creating their own herb and pollinator garden at the Bickford Center across from Christie Pitts, and eventually... Um, all of the gardens we create, we usually pass off to the not-for-profit. So we have one at Ashbridge's Estates. It's a three-sister garden. We have uh, sunchokes down there and, of course, the traditional medicines, sage, sweetgrass, uh, tobacco for prayer, and cedar. Uh, there is a pollinator, indigenous plants, rooftop garden with Native Child and Family Services uh, Youth Center, which is just down the street from this dish. It's on Bloor. Uh, Bloor and Christie area as well, just east of where we're located, and it's on their rooftop. We have a very large teaching garden that's got a lot, a lot of um, attention from the public from all over at the Crawford Lake Sanctuary, which is uh, just a little bit past Milton before you hit Guelph off the 401. You can find uh, this beautiful teaching garden of the Three Sisters and many other uh, vegetables that we've planted there at this incredible uh, historical site of the Huron-Wendat people at uh, Crawford Lake Sanctuary. Mm. So it's led to all these teaching gardens. It's led to this not-for-profit we've created that I'm the founder and uh, president of, and also to TIBA, Toronto Indigenous Business Association, right. which has um, got an office at CSI, which is also where CSI Annex is where both those not-for-profits have offices at. So you can find them both there. TIBA, of course, is very, very focused on creating the first Indigenous community district. When I say that, it's like mostly business associations focus on opening their businesses. That is a part of what we're focused on, but we're focused on the whole community, just like the Three Sisters. So we're looking at places that are best suited for housing for our people and housing to own, not housing uh, that are shelters, which we're seeing a lot of in our community. We really want houses to make our home and we have a right to have homes in the city, and that's that's the work that Tiba's trying to focus on, along with food access, along with jobs, job creation, and particularly social entrepreneurship, because it's through that. All of the Tiba members are social entrepreneurs. They're looking at how do their businesses help other people become successful, and that's really what Nishdish does. Nishdish's work is mainly for the community. It brings our, all of our people together to have the traditional food, but then we learn from one another, and that's what Tiba, the, the work that Tiba is doing. So we're really focusing a, a new, um, thriving uh, community within the Christie Pitts and Bickford Center area of the city at Christie and Bloor. And so that's part of the celebration I was talking about earlier. 
Uh, you mentioned something about uh, an, this uh, a garden opening up or, or, a, or like a, um, a farmer's market. That's right. That's yeah. called the Indigenous Harvesters Artisan Market. Yeah. It's on July 20th from 11 p.m. to 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. And it is at the Bickford Center across from Christie Pitts. It's at 777 Bloor Street West. And it will feature all the indigenous harvesters that we can attract. It will feature um, all the local indigenous restaurants that will do traditional food. It won't be bringing any food that uh, creates uh, or supports bad diets. We really want to help uh, people become aware of what our food is, how to access it, and how to cook it. So that's really what that's celebrating. Along with that is the indigenous um, mural uh, revelation. Mm. So the Red Urban Collective Indigenous artists will be revealing all of their massive murals that they're putting down at that site for our community. Now, uh, do you want to, can you give us a sense of, if people are thinking about going there for that, when you say traditional, what kind of things might people see there? Um, you'll see the traditional corn soup that uh, we mm. get mostly at powwows. Mm. You'll see all the different dishes that uh, Nish Dish does. Of course, you'll be able to get a bison chipotle sausage. You just won't uh, get it on a, a bunch of bannock because <laughs> we want you to be able to digest it and not feel bad mm. after you eat the food. Mm. So we're going to have a series of a, it's a massive beverage station that'll show you all the tea medicine. Some of it'll be made cold, some of it'll be made hot. But it'll, it'll, it'll feature all the different medicines we have that mm. are teas and they're beverages that are delicious, like the sumac plant, like mm. the balsam fir, uh, sweetgrass, cedar, uh, a series of different plants that we will make into delicious iced drinks for that hot July day. Nice. You know, as you were talking there, I was just, I was just thinking about you know, something else you see a lot at, at powwows is the, the, uh, the Indian taco. Yeah. What's your take well, on we'll that? do we'll do a different version of it. We always do. One of the biggest dishes we serve is uh, elk chili, and that's essentially what goes on a taco, except it's usually done with beef at powwows because it's that's mm. an, a more accessible meat and mm. it's a lot cheaper. But we have an elk taco. Uh, it just won't be on a whole pile of wheat again. It'll be on a, a different type of bread that's delicious and uh, easy to eat. Um, there'll be a lot of different types of fish to try at the market because we're bringing in the the uh, Fishmongers or the fish, the people who do uh, our traditional fishing from different local First Nations will be coming in. We're trying to find a, a wild rice harvester. That's very tricky, mm. but we hope to bring them in. There'll be a lot of speakers talking about the food and doing teachings about the food. And, of course, the double drums, the dancers, mm. all the elders will be down right. there, and the artists. And this particular artist vendor... Um, vendors will be hosting artisans that make their art only. So it's a makers only. You won't be reselling other people's products. You'll have to come from the artist directly. So that's an exciting part that you'll see down at this particular event. It, it really is exciting. And it's so nice to, to hear that in terms of how our busy lives are, are conducted today. And we don't get to see that authenticity as much as we would like to uh, anymore. So that sounds great. I hope that that's something that continues, maybe expands on. Yeah, the, the city's really excited about it, but our community's particularly excited. Right. So we've got all kinds of people contacting uh, ringfireproductions at gmail.com that are dancers, mm. traditional dancers, fancy dancers, uh, jingle dancers, uh, people who drum, people who sing. And people who have the old stories and the traditional oral teachings of our, our community to pass those things on can contact us at that, uh, at that address, too, if they're interested in participating. Great. Uh, Joel, it's been wonderful having you on the show today. And as I say, we, we've only scratched the surface here. We, there's so many other things I would love to talk with you about in terms of food, in terms of coffee. You have some great mm -hmm. uh, coffees that you serve, uh, and it would be great to talk about that and get people uh, uh, informed about those things. It's always a, a mixture of, of, um, uh, of names and education and fun uh, around Absolutely, that as well. Absolutely, yeah. So, Joel, it's been great again. Once I, again, uh, miigwech and Yawa for coming in. Oh, thank we, we you. Appreciate your time, and you're certainly a man that has a lot to share. And uh, miigwech for all the work that you're doing with the community as well. That's great. Miigwech, David, and hope you can come down and visit us at Nish Dish and maybe have some Moccasin Joe coffee all with right. us. That would be great. Look forward to it. We've been speaking with Anishinaabe chef Joel White Duck Ringette, and he is from the Nish Dish 
We're going to uh, take a pause, but don't go away because coming up right after this, we have Jenny Lazan in the studio. And welcome back to Element FM and Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. In the studio with us, we now have Jenny Lazan. Now, Jenny has been around for a while. You I've might have heard her name. <laughs> I don't mean that in the bad no, way. No, no, I say, hey, I've earned every single gray hair I have now. <laughs> of course, uh, I know Janie's name as a musician and someone who has uh, has had her name out as a musician and uh, from her CDs, which, by the way, I'm holding right in my hand. You can't see it, but you can hear it. And this is her CD, Thirst, and I, I know it's not the only one that you, that you had out, but, you know, the one song that I always think about with you is, is the version you did of... Is it 98 pounds? Oh, 99 pounds. 99 yeah. pounds. <laughs> Pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, at least yeah, I went 98. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, it was a great Irma Thomas tune, yeah. which I uh, did on uh, my first album, mm. uh, Blue Voice, New Voice, which yeah, yeah. came out in 1994. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, such a great tune. Mm. It was great yeah, it really song. Is. Yeah, yeah. It really is. And uh, in the days when you could actually hire a horn section to uh, travel with you, yeah, right. right? In those <laughs> days when you could do that. <laughs> Why don't we talk about that a little bit before we get on to Shaw yep. and your work and you're doing now? Because we want to talk about that for sure. But yep. let's talk about, you know, how you got started. Because you, you were always involved with theater and music. I was always involved with both, for sure. Like and playing I, the flute. I remember you playing yeah, the flute, right? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I grew up listening to Jethro Tull. So <laughs> Ian Anderson was my uh, my right. was my high school hero. Ah, so okay. uh, I would um, actually take my flute out out into the bush. I had this place I went to that I called the waterfall, and mm. and I would bring my flute out there and just blast my flute like Ian Anderson mm. and Jethro Tull to mm. the trees. <laughs> <It> made me <laughs> laugh. I've always been that kind of rebel, right? I mm. like to sort of turn things on on their side and look at it from a different right. point of view. But music was always a big part of my life. I mean, right. I grew up singing with my mom a lot, and my dad was a jazz piano player, although wow. I think he really, really struggled with that, having gone through a residential school system mm. and a very Catholic one where jazz was a sin. Mm. The love of jazz was sure. a sin. So oh, sure. he, I think he really struggled with that. He was also mm. a visual artist and at mm. one point just stopped painting because I think he also struggled with that. What right do I have to be creatively expressive like that yeah. if it's a sinful thing to do? But I grew up with a lot of that. And then my foster parents were theater people. So my foster father was the high school drama teacher and in Cranbrook, BC. And so I grew up around theater. And his parting words to me were like, whatever you do, just live your life creatively and just think like an artist and be an artist until the day you die. Mm. And it doesn't matter what you do as long as you live your life like that. And so... It was the best piece of advice ever. So music, theater, puppetry, all those things are just different branches on a tree mm. to me. They all they all come from the same seed. But Jenny, if you don't mind, can you tell us a little bit more about your upbringing then? Because it's interesting. You talk about your family, but then you talk about a, fa- a foster family. Yeah, so my parents split when I was quite young, okay. and then I lost my mom to cancer at 13. So mm. I went into the foster care system. Well, actually... I'd, I avoided the foster care system. My foster parents actually, before I actually went into the system, they just said, we'll, we'll take her. So I was very, very lucky. I was able to stay in Cranbrook around my support system, around the friends that I had. And um, and they were just, my foster father's still alive. He's still directing theater, still, nice. you know. So I was very, very lucky because I, I ended up with a family where love was a part of the family structure, where, you know, we sat around at the dinner table and analyzed plays and mm. you know then my my dad was also a huge uh, musical theater guy so we would sit around and listen to lps of <laughs> different musical <laughs> theater songs and so that was my upbringing and I, yeah. and it was it was a very beautiful and wonderful place to to grow yeah. up so I was one of the lucky ones for mm. sure like mm-hmm. the the place i landed was good nurturing supportive and just go out there and be an artist. And so I count my blessings every day. I wish my mom was still around for sure. Mm. I, you know, that was a big crack in my life. Mm. Um, But I have great and fond memories of my father playing piano, my singing with my mom. My mom was a doll maker too. She was very, Mm. very creative. So she made dolls. She was a remedial math teacher. She was just a really incredible woman. And uh, yeah, so I, I, you know, I've, really consider myself quite lucky in yeah. terms of even though there was a lot of loss there was a lot of love mm. and so I was able to really balance that experience right. out yeah oh well much for sharing that with yep. us appreciate that so you you did get into theater and music what was what came first music or theater well they both 
kind of came at the same time. So there was lots of opportunities in uh, the town that I grew up in to do like coffee mm. house type nights and to mm-hmm. play music in that. I failed band in high school, <laughs> mind you. But anyway, it's uh, <laughs> a totally different story. But I think theater was probably stronger just because my foster father was, I mean, I spent a lot of time backstage and in high school in all of the plays. And, and so it was a great combination of music and theater because musical theater gives you that option. So, mm. well, you know, when when you say that about failure, uh, I, I think about uh, the interview we did we did with Buffy St. Marie. She actually wants to add a Juno to talk about mus- musicians that were failures. Ah, uh, like, you know, that's great. Uh, uh, like Jimmy uh, Jimmy Hendrix and right. <laughs> people that right. really did not do well with musical theory or or that side yep. of things. Yep. Yet were geniuses, geniuses. And, and had great success in the world. Yep. Uh, so don't consider yourself uh, have done poorly by failing yeah. in that regard. So there you go. You're in good company. I just didn't, you know, my teacher wanted me to play the tuba and I just, mm. I was a flute girl. Right. And in Buffy was the same, you know, she failed uh, in music wow. at school and didn't do well with those kind of things. It's a specific system. And yeah. it really, music is like anything creative. It really depends on your teacher, I mm. think, too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So what was the, f- the first thing that you feel was a, a success for you in that regard? Well, my, the biggest success musically for me was pulling off my first album, mm. which was uh, 1994. Mm. I was uh, Juno nominated. It was great being there with Buffy <laughs> and all those folks. It was a great experience because I remember uh, some girlfriends and I drove a, sort of a beat up Toyota car and we got in the limo line. And <laughs> <laughs> so there's limo, limo, little beat up Toyota limo. Uh, <laughs> And those were the days when there was like chocolate fountains and, mm. you know, different right, kind right. of different kind of scenario. But for me, that was uh, and because folks like Buffy and Elaine Bomberry had worked so mm. hard to try to get that Juno category going mm-hmm. and had been successful. Yeah. It was a real testament, I think, to just what was possible in the future. Right. So that was really exciting. And then theater wise, I would say. I auditioned for a lot of theater schools and I wasn't able to get into any of them. Mm. So I decided that I would just study with people. So I yeah. I made a list of the people mainly coming from Europe who were interested in a different kind of, not necessarily a Western theater structure, masters like Yoshi Oida and a lot of mime and mask and clown mm. and things that were outside of mm. the Western structure. Right. And it gave me a really great foundation of training. And so my first most memorable experience was playing Raven in a show at Young People's Theatre directed by Maya Ardell. And I was a masked character and I had no lines, but I got a Doro nomination for that role. And I thought, okay, this is good. That tells me something about the possibility of theatre, that it doesn't have to be a Western structure. We can look to mask, which is very much a part of a lot of our cultural traditions. Mm -hmm. We can take that and influence a Western right. uh, piece of theater and still be successful with it. So it was a good learning curve for me. And I would say that was uh, thinking outside the box to say, okay, I'm not, I can't do it this way, but I'll find a way that I can yeah. do what I want to do and, and still study with some great people and, yeah, and learn the skills. That's, yeah. that's great. So that led you to where next? I really set my sights on creating my own work building my own stories and then also adding directing to my skills because right. I felt that directing was in fact the one area where I could put all of my skills together. Mm. My my teaching, my art, my artist education skills come in handy directing. You know, it's crazy this industry where the more experience you have and the older you get, the less work opportunities you have. So <laughs> it's good to it's really good to diversify, you know, in your <laughs> right. skills, yeah. Well, you know, and and so that takes us sort of up to date in terms of you're now at Shaw. Yeah, here I am. You're directing a play called Rope. Yeah. Patrick Hamilton was a writer, a UK writer at the turn of the century. And I I have to be honest to say that when Tim Carroll, who's the artistic director of the Shaw Festival, asked me if I'd be interested in directing, I I read the play and I went, maybe not kind of right up my alley. It's so colonial, right? Mm, <laughs> so right. like that turn of the century UK kind mm. of mindset. And I right. was like, I don't know if I'm the right person for this. <laughs> and then I thought about it afterwards. I thought, why not? Why not? Why not? Why am I saying I can't do that? That's mm. me saying I can't do that. Right. And so I phoned back. I said, no, I've changed my mind. I actually really want to do this. And I want to see if I can do it. And mm. and so I've learned a lot from that process. Mm. And, I, and I knew all along, but I just I kind of had to prove to myself that I could direct something like that. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the play then and and how it's 
coming along. And- you bet. So rope is a um, it's it's a murder mystery, but it's more like a whodunit. So mm. you know right off the top that these two young privileged. Oxford students uh, who are into Nietzsche and Nietzscheism and the idea of Superman, that they have a a privilege that is above the law. And so they murder a colleague of theirs and then they try to get away with it. And they invite the father of uh, the young man that they've murdered. And it's very funny, actually. It doesn't sound funny, but it is funny. to share a meal before mm. they head back to Oxford, in which mm. case the point of the meal and the gathering is to see if they can get away with it. Right. So I won't so I won't tell you how it ends, it but yeah, rubbing it in his face, kind of. Exactly. Thing yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it is funny, and it's it's been awesome to try to direct a, a murder mystery slash psychological thriller yeah. because um, it's a very specific kind of style of looking at what to reveal, what not to reveal, mm-hmm. and uh, and I do have a fabulous cast. I've been very lucky with the. All of the actors are really fantastic. Yeah, well, when you're, you know, when you bring in those um, that intellectual side of things with Nietzsche and and those kind of approaches that you're talking about, it yep. sounds very uh, interesting in its in its approach. Yeah, right from the start. And I I likened it to the fact that some of our political leaders, especially to the south, are spouting those same kinds mm. of thoughts today. Mm. So it's not like it's a new concept. Where right. I think we're actually right in the middle of that kind of we're back at it again. We're mm. back at looking at what I call the assumption of superiority, mm. which I think brought us into this whole mess in the first right. place of colonialization. Uh, okay, so that's what you, you're doing at the moment. Yep. How long is it running for? When's the, one of the dates? So kind of we, um, because it's a festival mm. setting, the yep. previews will actually take place until um, until opening on May 24th, okay. and then it runs until September in a festival schedule. Right. So I'd definitely check the Shaw website, but there's a bus that goes down to Shaw now, so it's yeah. a little more easily accessible. Right. Um, there's lots of options for arts worker type tickets and that sort of thing, so great to check all of that out, and just a whole lot of fun. And it's yeah. a great area. Niagara on the Lake is a beautiful area. It's a beautiful, beautiful area, and it's so Interesting, like when I, because I worked at Shaw last year as an actor and I found it really hard for the first month and a half to sleep well. And I realized that there's just so much history to that piece Mm. of land, Mm. right? Yep. And, you know, the War of 1812, all of that stuff, like there's so much energy in that land. Mm. And so I've also been taking the time to really go to the museum Mm. and, and really try to inform myself uh, about the history of that particular area, right. and it's complicated, and and there's lots of energy still that happens right. in that land. But it's beautiful, and being by the water is yeah. so amazing. And yeah. yeah, I thought you were going to say because it's so quiet. <laughs> well, it is, and it is lots of skunks too. Actually, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I can ride my bike for hours at night, yeah. and I don't see a car, like right. nobody. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really, really, except for the skunks, <laughs> me and the skunks. Um, and the birds. The mm, birds there yeah. are extraordinary. Like, right. you see birds in Niagara-on-the-Lake that you don't see in Toronto at right. all, and they're sure. extraordinarily beautiful, and their songs are absolutely amazing. So that kind of stuff makes me want to move out of Toronto, but uh, can't afford <laughs> to do that right now, but, you know... <laughs> I do want to ask you, because there's some interesting points here for discussion. Yeah. Intersectionality of the Shaw, of Shaw and casting. Yep. Uh, what, what do you mean by that? One of the interesting things about when Turtle Gals, as a theater company, and one of our shows, The Only Good Indian, we discovered a book called The Only Good Indian, The Hollywood Gospel, and mm. we discovered uh, that there were thousands of Indigenous performers at the turn of the century from silent film to jazz players. And, and then we went, wow, we, we were there. Mm. And then we got mad at ourselves because we realized that we had bought into that idea that we weren't. Right. And one of the things that I've always struggled with, with large festivals and institutions and the history of them is that we, as Indigenous performers, we're not, we've not been invited in right. because of the concept or the idea that we weren't there. We weren't present in those parlors in the UK. And in fact, we were. Um, there was lots of Indigenous people that were either mm. taken or brought over or went to the UK. Mm. Some very successful and some who traveled in those circles. There was lots of black people. There was lots mm. of South Asian people also in those circles. And mm. so so we were there. And what I love about what Tim Carroll is doing now is uh, opening up the casting and ensuring that the casting 
at Shaw's more reflective of what was in fact true, that we were there. Mm. What I'm excited about is that companies are now saying, yes, we need to be inclusive. And so they are being inclusive. The next step to that is what does that mean? So as corporations, as companies start to indigenize Mm. their programs, their way of thinking, their way of working, it's not enough to just do it. You have to then look deeper and go, how do we support this? Mm. What does it mean? Mm. Is there a place to smudge in the building? Uh, All of those things are now the next step. I'm thankful that we just sort of do it and then figure it out, because if we spent time figuring it out, it would never get done. So I am thankful for that. But I do believe that there's more work to do in terms of just now what does this mean and how best can this be supported in a good and healthy way, which is why I'm very thankful that um, places like Shaw have Tim Johnson on the board uh, because uh, that's how you need to do this. Mm. You need to have Indigenous people on the boards of directors so that the... Uh, so that the directives and the uh, initiatives come from that uh, that leadership position and sure. then filter down. Right. And so I'm really, really thankful that yeah. uh, Shaw is a leader in that and being inclusive that uh, you've got the guidance so that it's not just the performers who come in and say these are the things that need to be changed. It's Tim also sitting at the board level yeah. saying, this is why you need to change them, right. and this is how you can change them. So it, it really makes a difference when we've got governance. Right, yeah. yeah. And, and Tim Johnson, of course, uh, is is the guy who uh, you may not have, have heard of. He, he works behind the scenes a lot, but certainly yeah. his his work with uh, Rumble. Yeah, as an executive <laughs> is, producer, yeah. Yeah, yep. uh, huge influence there, and also with the, uh, the name, why is the name escaping me? Uh, Washington. Oh, the Smithsonian. Smithsonian, yeah. thank you. Yep. Uh, yes, heading up that uh, indigenous uh, wing for, for the Smithsonian. Absolutely. And creating uh, policy and yeah. change on, on those kinds of levels. Yeah. Like, and a very smart man. And, yep. and someone we have to get on the show. I have to actually Absolutely. pursue that. So yeah, we have yeah. to get him on the show. I, and I've been meaning to. I've been talking to him about yeah. it. We just haven't gotten around to it yeah. yet. So, uh, and, and the next thing, I guess, uh, you, have, you have one other thing that I wouldn't mind talking about. And that is your daughter and the next yes. generation of... Yeah actors and indigenous actors yeah. and artists. I'm very excited. So my daughter's about to um, graduate from the National Theatre School nice. in May. So she'll be up and out and mm. into the world and mm. uh, starting this summer. What I'm excited about is I'm looking at the next generation of indigenous performers and I'm happy for them. Mm. I'm happy that there are a plethora of more opportunities than the Buffy St. Marie's, the Tentu Cardinals had. I mean, mm. uh, Tentu was the the woman who knocked down all the trees for the rest of us sure. and Buffy the same. And mm. so, um, and then, you know, there was others of us who followed and now I shouldn't use a tree analogy. That's crazy. But, um, <laughs> okay. but they've, you know, they've, they've, they've opened up they, the opportunities for right. us. Yeah. They, they cleared the path. They certainly of. did. Yeah. yeah. And so those of my daughter's generation have way more opportunity than I could have ever have imagined. Mm. That having been said, I think they have, two responsibilities that I'm hoping that they take on, and that is to know the history, to know and and to educate themselves in terms of what Tentu did and what Buffy did and what Maria Campbell did in order to actually make it possible for them to be where they are today. And I think that's super, super important because we get into this thing sometimes where we go, oh, I'm the first. And I'm like, "Mm, there's probably a pretty good chance that you weren't, (laughs) you know. (laughs) And so I think that's really important. But also to know that they're at a a wonderful and yet complicated time where they're going to have to stand their ground on issues of appropriation. And they're going to have to be responsible for uh, speaking up and standing up and Mm. unfortunately going to have to carry that the weight of that responsibility. As the rest of the world gets really excited about our stories, uh, the more that happens and the more we're out there and the more that we're included and the more there's intersectionality, the more responsibility, in fact, uh, is on the, the shoulders of the artist who is often the only one in the room. And so I feel for them, but I'm excited about the opportunities for them. And you're right about that responsibility. And I think it, it just naturally comes with the territory when you're an Indigenous person in the arts or in some yep. way that you're in the, the light, you might say, the limelight of some sort. Yeah. Uh, because y- you are normally thought of as the expert. 
<laughs> suddenly. <laughs> You're suddenly. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> yeah. And and it yeah. comes with the territory, and you does, have yeah. to own up to it. You have to yeah. you have to at least try to uh, do your best to represent your people and your your nation with some respect, and and to try and share some of that knowledge. It's, it's an education, Absolutely. but it does come with that responsibility of just being who you are. Right? Yeah, and also to say I don't know the answer to that. Right. And we yeah. all have to go to someone who does. Mm-hmm. And so part of that, too, is mm. the protocol document from Imaginative and Indigenous Screen Office mm. uh, with Jesse Winte. It's a great document mm. about if you're going to engage with Indigenous stories, here's right. some things you want to think right. of. So yeah, yeah. these documents are now being created, and mm-hmm. they're so fantastic, and they're applicable to theatre as right. well. So we right. now have some help, but we also... You know, we, we, we need to educate the rest of the world, too, that if you if you want to bring Indigenous content or people into the storytelling aspects or bring Indigenous stories forward, then mm. it's going to be imperative that you also realize that you then need to bring in a cultural consultant and that make right. that part of your process right. so that it's not just the 24-year-old actor right out of... <laughs> Theater school who suddenly has this responsibility right. to say, yeah. so can I say this? Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, very true. But it's exciting. There's so much great theater and mm. film, and it's it's just so exciting. I'm so excited to see what yeah. this next generation does in terms of theater. We have some amazing young artists coming up. You know, I, I've often heard it addressed as pre- and post-Truth and Reconciliation. Mm. Because it seems like there is a change. Since Truth and Reconciliation came out, there's, there seems to be at least a more openness and willingness and um, and desire to, to learn and share and want to do more in the way of bringing the Indigenous element, these stories, etc., to the understanding of the greater community in Canada. Yeah, which is really, really fabulous. The only caution mm-hmm. I have about that is that everybody's in such a hurry. So... Um, what I find is that there's the willingness, which is great. Mm. But what I am finding, because I've been asked recently to do a, bring to come into a lot of corporations and and yeah. larger institutions to say, you know, we're we're we we really want to do this right. truth and reconciliation thing. We want to indigenize. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do we do? Right. So then and I'm they like, are looking for the the quick answer. They're, they're the looking end. for the quick answer. Yeah. And so I'm know. like, well, my thing is. You want to have a meeting? We can't do it over Skype. Exactly. We have to be in the same room. Right. Well, you know, even scheduling is crazy enough with some of these folks. And so I'm just hoping that with that willingness comes an understanding that this is is not an easy fix. Right. We're going to have to struggle with this dialogue. And they just want it to happen so fast and they want it to be quick and fast. And it's just not going to work that way. It's not a corporate answer. No. It's not going to work that way. No, not at all. And it took a long time to get into this. uh, And and as pointed out by... uh, uh, by Sinclair, it'll take us a while to get out of it. It's going to take us a while. Education is the way that he's he's saying will happen. Yep. Jenny, it's been fabulous uh, that you've been that you were able to come in and speak with us today. Yeah, really thank you. Appreciate you doing this and taking time out of your schedule. Yeah, and I hope Wish- some folks can come down to the Shaw and see Rope and yeah. and celebrate that. And yeah, you know, for sure, uh, Jenny uh, Miigwech. Uh, yeah, Miigwech. And, thank you, and uh, Nyawa for for coming in. I think the best way for us to end this is to actually go out with something we started talking about, awesome. and that is ninety nine pounds. Oh, What's awesome! That? Great. Why don't we end with that? Yeah, that's so fantastic. We're going to hear Jenny Lazan right here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. <laughs> 